they have cuss words in Wakanda. Be advised. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm a queer black feminist scholar. This is Darren, hailing from the mean streets of Anaheim. I'm an introvert, a novelist, and a nerd. We're early 30-somethings with three kids and over a decade of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness and adult life. We do adult differently. This is That Black Couple. Greetings. This is episode 13. The first episode of season 2 of That Black Couple. Grab your juice of the heart-shaped herb. Have a seat. I am T. Jin Ifa. I'm Darian. <laughs> Don't be confused. It's still the same two hosts of the show. <laughs> you threw me out my... <laughs> I know. You were in character and I broke it. Uh, I'm getting back in character. <laughs> Go ahead. Take a breath. Before we get started, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at that BLK couple, on Facebook at that black couple, and look us up on the internets at www.thatblackcouple.com. Very good. Thank you. It's like it's like we were really in Wakanda for a moment. I know. Like we traveled back. I know. I'm proud of you. you did a good job. You can stream episodes on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you have to rate us high, or we are going to take that shit personally. All right, let's go. Very personally. Very. You gonna not the, very. You going to do the accent? Very personally. This is the Black Panther episode of That Black Couple. The Black Panther episode? Mm, not Black Panther. Mm. Black Panther. Oh, Blake. No. Black. No. Bleak. Uh. Painter. No, there's no I <laughs> in it. <laughs> Why are you putting an I in Black Panther? I'm not Forrest Whitaker, okay? I'm not Forrest Whitaker. This is the Black Panther episode of that Black couple. I'm going to just leave that You're to done? You. Okay, yeah. fine. So, it's Jen and Darren to Jennifer. Jen. And Darren. And to Darren. And Darren. To to Darren. No? No. Like T'Challa. T'Chaka. No? No. No? No? Mm Mm-mm. To Darren. Nope. Okoye. Well, so... so Shuri. I was talking to some Australian folks, and they said in Australia, if your name is Darren, they call you Daza. Oh, that's dope. So I could be Daza. Oh. Can we put a T in front, though? Tadaza. Oh my god! You like it? For the rest of this fucking episode, you are Tadaza. Tadaza. I am Tidjennifer. I'm Tadaza. Oh fuck. This episode, I'm already excited. Okay. <laughs> In segment one, we're going to talk about Black Panther, the movie. We'll tell you about what we did, how we saw it with, what it was like, and our experience. Then we're going to actually do a mild review. And I say mild because we actually both, I think, like the movie. 
Loved it. Loved it. So there's really not like spoiler alert. We loved it. Exactly. So there's no reason to like trash it. And then in the last section, um, the reflection, we're probably gonna just talk about our feelings about Black Panther and what it will be like going forward. So I think we should just get into the episode since we're back. I know I sound kind of not great. You sound just fine. I sound groggly because I'm not feeling well. You sound just fine. Oh, thank you, baby. Let's get started. You gonna tell them what we did? Okay, so we went to go see Black Panther just like everybody else on God's Green Earth. We had to go (laughs) opening weekend. Wait, did we go opening weekend? Yeah, we did. Oh yeah, we did the opening weekend. We have we have planned just like a lot of other folks. We have planned this like months in advance. So you know we're parents. So the second the tickets came out, we purchased the tickets. We sure got, did. We got dead center seats. Sure did. At the bomb theater with the recliners mm-hmm. and everything, and good food. Yep. And we had our childcare set up months in advance. Yep. So we knew that wasn't going to fall through. Yep. Then the week beforehand, we we hit the store. You know, because got we them had, clothes. Got to, got to get the clothes. We had Pop to do all in. the full cosplay. Right, right. And we said, okay, we got to get our kids to go see the movie too. So we got some clothes for our kids too. We booked the second showing the following day, right, so that we could go with them. Because you know, the first time we had to get the full experience without kids screaming. No potty breaks. And, yeah. yeah no potty breaks. No, mommy, I want to sit with you. Or that's scary. No, no, none of no, that. No, uh-uh. no, no. I spilled icy all over myself. No, none of that. No. And so we showed up that opening day. After going to Papado's. That's true. We went to Papado's. We went to Papado's. Because we had to have a full day experience. It was the blackest oh my black day ever. Like, I don't think we could have been blacker. Like, we went to Papado's in our African print outfits, had like the most amazing gumbo and fried, fried fish and wonderfulness I've ever eaten in my whole black life. Then we dropped our kids off and left them. Bye. And then went to see Black Panther. I mean, that's like the blackest. I've never had a blacker day. Maybe the day I was born. I mean, that was a pretty black day for me. Maybe. I mean, like, I was, I, that was the day I got my blackness assigned. But I feel like this might be the second most blackest day of my life. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And everyone had hyped up the movie and said how great it was. And so I was concerned I was going to go in there and it was going to still be good. But like, since it was so hyped up, I wasn't going to enjoy it as much. And that was just false because I agree <laughs> because the melanin was just popping straight off the whole screen the entire time. And also my Fenty was popping. Yes, your Fenty was, was popping right back. My Fenty. It was like a mirror. My Fenty was like, oh, Black Panther, you think you got something? <laughs> we got this trophy wife, though. I had my color match on. I had my 410 popping. I had my Anastasia eyebrows. You know, I was ready. I had my Urban Decay eyeliner, my 24-7 glide on eyeliner. No. You look at me like you're not listen, feeling me. Listen, listen, listen. I'm going to admit something that I didn't go come into this episode plan to admit. But you, your Fenty was popping. It was popping. And then so you looked at me and you said, I'm going to just give you a little residual Fenty. And you dusted around my face <laughs> for about 10 seconds with what was left over on your brush after you had done your whole face. And then I looked at myself in the mirror and said, my Fenty is popping too. <laughs> I said, I don't know what magical herbs <laughs> Rihanna put into this Fenty. But... It was the herb of the heart-shaped flower. <laughs> she put the herb of the heart-shaped flower. Mm-hmm. She, that's that's the secret to Fenty. In she, the Fenty she Foundation. She goes to Wakanda and she'd be like, hand me one of them heart-shaped herbs. She said, Killmonger, I know you <laughs> really don't want these flowers to get out of Wakanda. However, 
I need it for my Fenty. Well, let me let me just say this before we get started, because I was about to start doing spoilers. I know most people have seen the movie, and if they've seen it, they've probably seen it two, three, four, five, six times, too. But if you, perchance, have not seen it, you should, you should pause, just don't listen to us. pause this, run to the theater and watch it, and, and then, then run back, back home and finish. Because we're going to tell you everything. Because I'm about to do a spoiler right now. Okay, go ahead. Because you were talking about that heart-shaped herb, and I was like, Rihanna must have been just like a... Uh, like Shuri. Shuri? Like Shuri. Uh-huh. And sneaking in. Oh, wait, no. That wasn't Shuri. That was not Shuri. It was Okoye. No, no it, was it was not. Nakia. Yes. It, it was, was Nakia. Nakia. Lupita. Lupita. Nakia Nyong'o. Uh-huh. Sneaking in through the back door, moving the vines out the way, and snatching one of them heart-shaped I herbs. Think, That's Rihanna. I think in actuality, what she said was, Yacht! I think that was the correct sound. <laughs> yacht! Yacht! Like Tiffany Haddish said, you know, it was like the way the ancestors be snatching your soul out when you do some wrong shit to black people. Yeah. Like that. That's how she snatched that heart-shaped flower. Heart-shaped flower. Sorry. Listen, when he brought all that stuff down, I was I was about to write it. Okay, so what we have to do is this. Okay, listen. Okay, we're getting <laughs> we get, into the show already. We get too deep. Now, what we got to do is this. Okay, we're in the introduction. We got to finish talking about what we did. We went and saw the movie, and we saw it with actually in a, a theater out here in Illinois that has a lot of like a mixed crowd. There were a Very lot nice. of black people there. There was also a lot of white people there. And they were like, girl, I love your earrings. Them kind of white people. Mm-hmm. Then some cute earrings. I was like, thank you, girl. Okay. Um, I love your nails. Girl, okay, bye. They look like an African flag. Exactly. She didn't know what it was. Um, but I think what was interesting was that a lot of people didn't dress up. There were very few people dressed up. I was stunned. I was stunned, too. I was really stunned. I expected to see more people dressed up. So I was kind of disappointed that we didn't have that experience because that was the hood experience that I kind of wanted. But, you know, ain't nobody out here where yeah, we live. And what you they, ain't, they ain't that hood. They ain't that hood. Wow. Um, but at the same time, I thought it was interesting because we went that first night at night. And the next day, we went in the morning. And it was two very different crowds. Mm-hmm. And that first night, it was a lot more black people. And it was like, girl, nah, like talking to the screen. Kill my girl, don't do it. Like there was some moments of that. Or like, wasn't somebody like, but look at Trump though. Or something yep, like that. Someone did say that. <laughs> did so say we, that. <laughs> we had some of those moments or whatever. But the next day, like the jokes didn't fall the same way. And it was really kind of sad. I was like, ooh, y'all whack. Like either y'all don't know what this movie's about or you don't follow the comics or you just really just came here to see a movie on a Sunday morning. And I was like, ugh, I would really be very disappointed if this was the only experience I had because they were just kind of meh. Well, and I think that was the thing about going to see this movie. Like, we knew it was supposed to be kind of like a communal experience. And so when we went that first night, I feel like we got enough of a taste of it. I think so. Of we are all watching this movie together. I might not know you personally, but we are here having this experience. And that makes it bigger and better than what it would be just on its own but and even, it was great on its own even also i was thinking about when we were at papado's and people behind us were talking about having just seen it and like how if people saw you in your african print attire like i was getting my nails done the day before and someone was like oh are you gonna see black panther yeah me too what you gonna wear like like it was a whole conversation in the nail shop about what people were wearing to the movie you know and i thought that yeah. was so dope that there was this kind of moment where everyone was talking about this movie and i say everyone I mean everybody black was talking about this movie, not as like a, hey, let's all go see this movie because it sounds really cool and popular, but as an experience that we were sharing as an African diaspora, like something that we needed to do culturally and that we had certain traditions and practices that we were all engaging in in similar ways. 
so that we could enjoy the experience together. And I thought that was dope. And I think it was very amazing to see people come together like that because, you know, a lot of times when, when black productions come out or, or, you know, there's a black business, people say, we all need to go and support. We all need to go and support. And and a lot of times we do. I mean, a lot of black films come out and we all rush to the theater to to see it um, like the first weekend. And I was doing some research just recently and I was really confused because I'm like, every, the black, black films in history are so profitable. They make yeah. like two, three hundred times the budget. Right. And half the time, the budget will be so low because, right. because the studios think, oh, it's, it's not, not going to make that money. much money. But right. every time it makes money. Right. That's another here and there. But so in this case, it was funny because I feel like, no, I never heard someone say, oh, we got to go out and support Black Panther. We got to go and support. But I feel like that was like a, like a, underlying sentiment that we all yeah. had like this movie is great this movie is basically black excellence personified right and so we all need to show up and show out right on opening weekend right on the second weekend right on the third weekend right on the 16th weekend i mean <laughs> i even saw people who were like listen go multiple times over the weekend if you have to like whatever you gotta do i saw people who bought tickets and were like i can't go but i'm keeping my tickets like i mean it was one of those things where like i'm gonna do what i have to do to make sure that this experience ends up being something that changes the industry and the ways that movies are made in the future. And I thought that was dope. Like, I thought that was super dope that we all kind of came together like, listen, this is ours and we are going to support it. Now, I just hope that that same fervor still shows up when Wrinkle in Time comes out in a couple of weeks. Right? Because then it's like, like, y'all. I mean, listen. They're both Disney movies. They're both Disney movies. They're both by black directors. They both got big budgets. They got diverse casts. The only difference is gender. So uh, I hope people still plan on showing up because well, y'all. Because uh, we plan on showing up. Sure will. And I think we should do the same thing. I plan on going with you and then with the kids because then them little Negroes. Well, let's talk about that for a second, though. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. like, we talked about the experience of seeing it with them and seeing it by ourselves. But I think also something we need to point out is that it, I think it was really important that we took them to see that movie. Absolutely. Like, because because for them to see those images on screen, like, we always talk about what you see and how that influences you as, as a person and what you think is possible. And I, I think for us, it was like to show our kids this at an early age to say, look, they are leaders. They are engineers. They're, you know, on the front lines. Every black woman got natural hair. I mean, and they were all gorgeous. I mean, stunning. I got pregnant like five times watching that movie by every gender of person. <laughs> they, they was just spreading it around. I just got pregnant. It was <laughs> just spontaneous. I came out the movie with quintuplets. And they were, and they were all, all they, different. They were parents. all the Messiah. All different parents. <laughs> just telling you. Lupita got me pregnant twice while watching that. Listen. And so did the Nigeria. Listen. I think they got me pregnant twice and three times watching those two women. Listen, deny. Is I I don't know what to do with her. Deny. I don't know what to do with Deny Rira. If you listen to what in the hell? What happened? What What is he doing? I'm looking at this movie and I'm like, okay, I've been watching you on Walking Dead this whole time, and I've loved you the whole time as Michelle. I've loved you the whole time, but girl, come on, listen. Why are you snatching my wig like this? And snatching the wig when she snatched that wig off her head and threw right. it. What come What on. happens to the universe? When somebody snatches your wig by snatching their own wig, I don't. Does it create it's like time a hole? It on yeah, does it does it create like a black hole to thing? Like does time, 
Like, can you jump through it and land back into some other dimension? I don't know. We in a warm. Is it a pocket like on Flash? I don't know. I mean, I feel like if you snatch my wig by snatching your own wig, then are all the wigs then snatched into perpetuity? And not just snatching it, but then snatching, snatching it, it and, and using throwing it as a it weapon. at a white guy. I said, you know what, girl? The, my head is it's, it's exploded. It's a new dawn. It's a new dawn, and it's, it's a, a new, new day, day in <laughs> and fight I, scenes. And I'm feeling good. It's a it's a new dawn. It's a new day in fight scenes when we are throwing wigs <laughs> at people effectively, effectively, and then the spear, the wig, then the spear. I just don't know what to say. I don't know. Okay, sorry, we cannot talk. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna do that the whole episode. I can we're getting on topic. It's Black Panther. We're getting on topic. It's Black Panther. It's the Black Panther. Black Panther. Oh gosh, Darren. Panther. I think we should move to the conversation. Panther. Oh gosh. Okay. No. No, baby. I'm just not it. Baby, no. Okay, I'll stop. Okay. I quit. Good. Thank you for listening. We are the proud founders of WaterCoolerConvos.com, a platform at the intersections of blackness, culture, and adulting. We started that black couple to dive deeper into the issues facing young black millennial folks navigating the anti-black, anti-queer, white supremacist world today. This podcast is supported by donations and patronage of our listeners and readers of our blog. You should head over there and check out some of the content when you get a chance. If you would like to become a monthly subscriber or patron, and help fund our content, sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash watercoolerconvos. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Please consider giving $5 or $10 per month to help us build our platform and grow our organization. We really want to hire new writers and social media people, y'all, but we can't do that without your help. You can also give a one-time donation at www dot paypal.me forward slash water cooler combos all donations are welcome you can stream the show on google play apple itunes stitcher and soundcloud when you listen please consider hitting that heart button sharing an episode giving us a five-star rating and leaving some dope ass comments this helps us with our page views and also gives us more listeners for the show thank you so much let's get back to the show and we're back with the conversation. Are you ready? I stay ready. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say that every time. You are, and you shouldn't. So, okay. So, I think what we should do in terms of talking about Black Panther is look at a couple of the reviews that came out. And there's two in particular that I think we should talk about. The first is Christopher LeBron's piece in the Boston Review. The one called Black Panther is not the movie we deserve. So, we'll obviously put the links in the show notes Mm -hmm. but and i don't want to go through the whole article i thought it was a really good article i guess he's getting some heat about it um (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty critical of the movie um which i think is fine because everyone has their own opinion i think there were some key points in the review that are really important that we should probably think about so i guess there's three that i really want to focus on and his core point is really about um the character Eric Stevens, Eric Killmonger Stevens, who basically in Black Panther is the bad guy, effectively. And it's really hard because you you don't quite understand why he's the bad guy for most of the movie. You're kind of just sitting there like, 
he's the bad guy because they told us he's the bad guy, but he doesn't seem that bad. And he actually has some valid critiques of imperialism and colonialism. So it's like, if he's against the things I'm also against, I don't understand how he's the bad guy. And so at some point, they, I think they realize, oh, we have to really ratchet up the the scariness of Killmonger. And mm-hmm. so then he just starts killing people. And they're pretty much, you know, women. <laughs> so it's like, there you go. Look, in case you were wondering, he's the bad guy. Well, I think there's a part, the part, obviously, when he's he's fighting T'Challa. Right. And he throws T'Challa over. Right. And it's supposed to be like this really sad moment. And I remember watching him being like, number one. Everyone in here knows T'Challa ain't dead, so right. the power of this this moment is lost because right. we know he's not dead. He's right. going to be in the next Avengers movie. We already know this. Like this, right. this is kind of pointless. But then also it was like, well, he won fair and square. He won, and he deserved his chance. And he practiced and he studied and he he got his game up for the chance. And, and then he's he won. A better fighter. So I can't, you know, like I can't really fault him in right. this moment. And T'Challa is kind of wrong in the moment too. So it would. Like, they set it up to try and be some big emotional loss moment, but the problem is too much of it was warranted for for anyone to feel that bad about it. Right, and I think that's the problem. So so LeBron brings this up and talks about how the movie kind of wants us to not like Killmonger, mainly because he's this kind of black American person who is the the black sheep, kind of. And they don't want to accept him back into the fold, this kind of purist, this puerile african tradition of wakanda where he's on the outside even though he is wakandan right because he's in jobu's child so he is therefore you know t'challa's cousin royal he's lineage. royal right right so his name is injadaka and he is technically the son of a prince so it's kind of like well okay y'all so when he comes and he's like hey i want to be up in the castle and they're like oh you don't belong here he's like but wait uh I low-key do. Also, high-key, what's up, auntie? (laughs) You know, like, right? So LeBron talks about that, about how the movie really wanted us to see, you know, Killmonger as this kind of inherently bad character. And the only reason why we really see him that way is because he's from America, because he's a black man who grew up in poverty in Oakland, where I'm from, right? And so that's rough because I'm like, that's really, that's a really difficult plot device for me Right. To really wrap my head around. And it's also kind of lazy. Especially when he's someone who went to MIT. Who you killed his dad. And he had to walk in there and actually see his dad lying on the floor. With claw marks in his chest. Because y'all are so lazy. I mean come on. What? Y'all ain't never watched no CSI show? <laughs> y'all ain't never watched Law and Order CI? You gonna call? You gonna walk in. Right? With the spears. And show up in an apartment in Oakland. It looked like West Oakland, too. And you're going to just claw this man to death and walk the fuck out? There are no saber-toothed tigers in West Mm. Oakland. Now, we got mountain lions in the hills. But we ain't got no saber-toothed motherfucking tigers in the housing projects in West Oakland. No. So how do you explain this? Of course he's going to be mad at y'all. Because he sees a fucking panther claw mark on his dad's dead chest. I mean, what you... I mean, what'd you think he was going to say? Oh, man, that's probably one of them mountain lions from the hills. <laughs> Came hills. in here and hopped in the elevator and went up to the 15th floor. Real quiet and sneaky like. Knocked on the door. My dad opened it. 
and said, hey, mountain lion. And then he just stabbed him right in the chest. Yeah. And then he, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so I think that's interesting also. And I think that LeBron's piece is important because he notes that Killmonger is not even really seen as viable, redeemable. You know, and he compares it to Loki. And I, you know, I fucking hate Loki. I can't fucking stand Loki. I don't like Loki in the comics. I don't even like the Thor comics. I don't like Loki in the comics. I don't like Loki in the fucking movies. I don't know why somebody wants to just decapitate Loki. I don't know why we're still fucking watching Loki. You kill him and he comes back. It's kind of pointless. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of Loki. I'm so, he's skinny and pale. He needs a haircut. He's not even that talented. Listen, one of the best moments of all these Marvel movies yes. was when he was fighting the Hulk. Agreed. Hulk just smashed him over. Agreed. Over. That was one, How I did he survive that? Everyone cheered. Come on now. So, and he compares Killmonger to Loki. And it's like, that's legit. Loki has literally risked the universe at least four or five times. The universe. Not just Wakanda. The universe. He's almost killed the universe. Yep. And then, like, he's, he's Thor's brother. <laughs> just, I mean. Let's lock him up, y'all. You know, Put give him, him back to jail. Thor. Give him back to Thor because Thor will handle it. You know, <laughs> I know he didn't last time, but I trust he'll do it this time. What are we doing? What are we doing? Whiteness. What are we doing? So I agree with that point. I also thought that the handling of Claw in the movie was terrible. And LeBron brings this up too. The fact that in the comic book, Claw is like this arch nemesis character who like is not this maniacal cackling beast thing that they had in the movie. Just like, ha 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 ha. I like killing and stealing. That's not Claw from the comic book. I mean, I don't like to go too deep into the comic history because I know some people can get lost in that. Yeah. But Claw has been in multiple forms. He's completely transformed from one character to the to a new one. I mean, he's getting he's supposed superpowers. to be smart and like he was never strategic. This. Yeah, he was never this. I was like, wait. And at one point, I think in the movie, I asked you like, who's that? Because there's a lot of times where they adapt them from the comics to the movie, right? And I don't even recognize the characters in the movie, and they say their name. And I'm like, maybe they mean a different person because it doesn't it doesn't ring a bell for me because they're not acting like what I'm used to reading in the comic book. And I, and LeBron's piece brings this up like. This was a really good opportunity to actually have a real a real arch nemesis, like a really strong enemy for Black Panther that wasn't another black person. Right. That wasn't his cousin. Which would make way more sense for the movie. Right. And I don't I don't know if I'm jumping ahead from what you were gonna say, but that was one I think one of my big critiques from the movie is there were just so many missed opportunities. Yeah. The fact that they killed Killmonger at the end, the fact that Claw was like a sub-villain who just gets killed unceremoniously like early on in the film, even though mm-hmm. he's been in prior Marvel movies playing a somewhat major role. Right. I mean, he was in Age of Ultron. Right. Like, right. what are we doing? Right. And then also um, Killmonger's girlfriend, Nightshade. Yeah. Like. Go ahead and tell him who Nightshade is. This is this is another like serious canonical character in marvel comics that has lasted for decades and decades and decades right she was in like captain america comic books she was a villain for a long time i think yeah recently she's actually somewhat become kind of um a hero to some degree and she's she's actually kind of fighting for the lives of black people in the comic books now and so the fact that i mean i don't think they even really named her in the body of the film no and she basically was just used to help them steal stuff and then get killed so that nothing i mean like basically there was no point in her getting killed no it was just like oh this just shows you that killmonger is really about his business and doesn't really care but i'm like 
do we really need to have a, a image on screen of this black man not caring about this black woman because of some means that he's trying to achieve? Yeah. Like, so I don't know if we needed that. That's another critique that LeBron has in the article that I think is spot on. And I do think that there was intentionality from Ryan Coogler to show that Killmonger doesn't care about women. And I think that's why he kills her. That's why he kills the Dora Milaje in the way he does and is like smiling about it. And so for some reason has to take his mask off and smile in order to do it. Because whatever. Because <laughs> why not? And and also hymns up the priestess in the in the temple when she's doing the work with the, the herbs and tells her to, to set them all on fire. And it's supposed to show us that he doesn't even care if it's women. He'll kill whoever he has to. And I get, I get it. Like, I get it. And that's fine. My other issue is, is that what we miss when we're trying to, when we're trying to write male characters who we want to be these like maniacal, sociopathic, narcissistic, you know, killers who have no care for anyone else, is that the other part of this is that those characters that they're harming actually don't have any agency either, right? So you also are writing Nightshade as if all she can say is, I'm going on a break and sorry (laughs) before she dies. I mean... To go back to the comics, this woman is a genius. She's a genius. Comics. She's a genius. She's a genius and a military strategic like killer. She she would not have just stood there and gotten shot, first of all. And she wouldn't have got hinned up by Claw, of all people. So for me, especially not this Claw, the no. Claw that he's playing in the movie. So for me, I'm just like, my issue with trying to make Killmonger look a certain way, you also are writing the women that he's harming in another particular way. Right. As these damsels who have no agency or autonomy, who are unable to actually be strategic or unable to fight for themselves. This is Adora Milaje that he kills, right? And the way he kills her, she's just kind of sitting there like, oh, for Wakanda, yeah, you know? These, these are the elite guards. What are we doing, right? And so he kills Nightshade, who's either going to be killed by him or Claw. He kills Adora Milaje, who he just gets hemmed up and just slices her throat. And he hems up a priestess. And I'm just like, I totally understand what you're doing. I totally get it. Killmonger's bad. And he threw T'Challa over a, a waterfall. I totally understand. But I really want us to also think about these women characters with nuance as well. And that to me was another major missed opportunity. Because it's almost like they were saying, well, we have enough strong women. So let's also make sure we have some really, really weak ones too. Who get harmed in some really unexplicable ways. Right. And it's, it's like... We can't have, like, a range. Does it have to be that polar? It was the polarity that I think got me. It's like either you're super, super strong, Okoye, and you're going to, like, kill your own boo, or you're, like, you go from being that to, like, I'm about to get killed. And it's like there's nothing in the middle. There's no negotiation. You know, like, even Nakia, I was like, yo, you've been out in the field being a spy, and then she started fighting. You're like, you fight better than some of the Dora Milaje makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, I need there to be some type of like strategic way that we're thinking about how the women characters are written. And I understand, but it can't be like either damsel or strong or strong black woman. And that to me was a major missed opportunity. So I thought those points were good. I thought those points were fantastic. And I think in terms of the review, I just thought that stuff was really important to point out. And I'm actually glad that he said it because I think that after we watched the first time, that was a lot of the stuff that we said to each other. Those were kind of the exact points that we brought up. So I really wanted to make sure that we talked about it today. I also thought that Law Wears piece in New York Times was important. So it came out, I think, the Sunday after the, uh, the, the premiere. So it came out, let me see, what's the date? February 16th. And it's called 
Black Panther and the Revenge of the Black Nerds. So originally I, I was reading this and I was like, what girl? Like, <laughs> this is not about black nerds. And, but I also kind of thought, like, it made me think a lot. And I think we were talking about this, about this kind of black nerd thing that's happening. But I think it's been happening for a while. I think the thing is, and I saw that Pew recently put something out about black nerds and saying that black nerds are now people who are ages 21 to 37. So people who were born in 1981 to 1996, they're trying to make a line in the sand. How are we going to? They said that. That's what they said. That's what they said. I'm just telling you. So. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I don't totally disagree, but. I think that there is something in particular about that era of us who were born at a time where we didn't have computers or personal computers, and then we got them, didn't have cell phones, and then we got them, had VCRs, and watched them turn into DVD players, and then saw like our CD players turn into MP3 players, turn into stuff playing on our phones electronically. You know, that process that we watched that happen really, really quickly over the span of like two decades. And I think there's something particular about that moment that makes a lot of us nerds. It's not like, you know, it's anomalous to be a nerd in that generation. If you're born in like the mid to late 80s, early 90s, you're probably a nerd. Probably, yeah. I mean, just thinking about the types of shows that were on TV, like we were, we've been talking about Ghost Rider all weekend. <laughs> but like, you know, Ghost Rider, or thinking about the fact that Family Matters was huge. And it was that was kind of a nerdy show. And then like the person who was funny on the show was Urkel, but also we we all laughed at the people on the show who weren't very smart. Eddie was funny because he wasn't smart. Waldo was funny was because he wasn't smart, and it was like he's not a nerd, and that made mm-hmm. him like the punchline. Now, no th- sh- I mean, think about Urkel. A lot of times, Urkel snapped back. He at was really Urkel, hard. Urkel threw total shade at people, so he wasn't like some passive like nerdy character who was just getting like made fun of all the time. We weren't just laughing at him because he was a nerd. Maybe in the first season or so. But over time, he was like clapping back. And so I think that there's ways that we should also be thinking about this Black Panther moment and thinking not about like, oh, it's okay to be a nerd now. Because I think it's been okay to be a nerd for a while. Like I think about uh, Jamie Broadnax, my friend, who has run Black Girl Nerds since like, what, 2012? It's been so long. Something like that, 2011. It's been a long time. And she's been kicking it with Ava DuVernay and Shonda Rhimes. And like she's been doing that for a minute. And so it's been cool to be a nerd. I think what's different now is that companies like Disney will now give you $200 million to make a movie. That's the big distinction. As a nerd, right? And I think I think that's a big distinction kind of more globally as well. Because even those people like you named, like like Shonda and, and Ava DuVernay, like, these people are nerds too. So, you know, let's not act like like nerds are off in some faraway country and they're, and they're you know trying to emigrate in and like no they've been here they've been working they're they're everywhere and now i think there's just been this title to where that's now a positive thing like like that term has been kind of turned around right and And so now disney can give you 200 million for a movie right and i always think about your love of back to the future like (laughs) and like how that was super new when we were kids and when michael jackson was making all that super futuristic shit when we were kids or like my thing was honey i shrunk the kids so all this stuff was coming out in the mid to late 80s early 90s that was like "Ooh, look technology and you can do really cool stuff let's make all these cool movies where you're shrinking people or going into the future or making laser fights and you know star wars was coming out and so i mean that was kind of the zeitgeist that was what we grew up in that was that was the norm 
Yeah, it's it's the idea of innovation has kind of been the defining, I guess, term for the last three to four decades, really, of the U.S. trying to be the leader and trying to create all this new innovation and this technology race to who's going to have the smallest screen and who's going to have the fastest phone and who's going to like that's that's been the movement. The movement is like making the future now. And I, I remember it's funny you, you talk about Back to the Future because I remember Back to the Future too, which I just love like all the Back to the Future movies. But Back to the Future too was when you know Marty McFly went into the future, and in that in that movie, like he goes into the future, and then we actually experience the time that he went into the future, mm-hmm. right? We we lived through that year, and there was this big thing of okay, so how much technology did they did they get? How much stuff did they say was going to occur and be here? that actually is here at the time, right? To see how much of this movie became real life. And there was a fair amount of technology that they said, okay, maybe by that time we'll have created this type of innovation. Mm-hmm. And we did. And the idea behind that is that we want to be so technologically advanced and that we want to have all these cool gadgets. Um, I mean, you think about just even think about like iPhones and like the whole idea of like selfies. Right. That's that's kind of a techie thing Absolutely. at its core. And, and that's something that everyone does, whether or not they, they deem themselves a nerd or not. And so what you would call a nerd like in the 80s versus what you would call a nerd now, it's completely it's different in shifting. meaning. It's definitely shifting. I mean, the things that you could do on your phone now, the ways you could make memes and the ways you can chop up videos. I mean, yeah. people are learning HTML code. We learned HTML code from like MySpace because right. you had to use HTML code to make your page pretty. To do the colors and the images. Right. <laughs> it's like I know a hashtag F F F F F because I knew what color you know, it's like you have to learn these things. And so I think that I agree with this idea that this is kind of revenge of the black nerds, but I also disagree with the idea that it's new. I think that we've been brewing for a long time. I think that we're all 80s and 90s kids. Yeah. And we've grown up and we started making things like Steven Universe. We started making things like Black Panther. You know, we're the people making the culture now. Like, we're the people who have the budgets. We're the people who are making the shows and the movies and the clothes and the phones and designing the ad campaigns. Like, we're the ones, we're the, you know, we're... We're also partly the Harry Potter generation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We have all that shit wrapped up into the millennial generation. So it's like, we're not, it's not like we're getting revenge per se, as much as we're just kind of like living, right? Because like, yeah. we're the young ones now. Like we, we we decide what cool is. Yeah. We make cool now. We, we are the purveyors of cool. I agree. And so now cool things are comic book films and comic books. And cool tech gadgets. Absolutely. And Wakanda is the quintessential version of that. Wakanda was all about technology. It's all about, you know, the idea that you can have this futuristic nation of black people, the black diasporic people who are living off on their own and not dependent upon these external outsourced and you know sources for their own survival. And what could that possibly look like? It was imagining this world where, you know, African diaspora people, African people have lives that we don't even actually have now, right? It's like, what what could that look like? It's Yeah, it's turning the stereotype on its head. Because right. when you think about the media, any African nation is always cast as like war ravaged or like just starving for resources or just they can't sustain any type of structure or, or form. And here comes Wakanda that says, oh no, we are the pinnacle. Right. We're better than you. Right. We're far more advanced than you. We're smarter. 
and you can't even, we're, we're so good, you don't even know that we're here. Right. You don't know that we're here, and you don't even know, you don't even know what you don't know. Right. Right. I mean, that's fucking dope. And I think that that's what I really like the most about this kind of intersection of the nerdiness innovation of like Black Panther and Wakanda with the fact that this movie is coming out at this particular moment and the blackness of it. Like, I'm not that invested really in the storyline because I just, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute. But like, I think what I am invested in is the reimagining that it is linked to, the Afrofuturism and the fantasy that it's linked to, the moment it's linked to. The fact that these actors are, for the most part, you know, young 30s and 40s, people who also grew up in that kind of millennial moment. So they have an intimate relationship with that change as well. That I think that that's what makes the movie particularly important and particularly innovative. That's what gives me hope for the direction of Black films like this and at this scale in the future. Like what you hear? You can find my mom and dad, a.k.a. That Black Couple, on the web at thatblackcouple.com. You can find them on Facebook at That Black Couple, and you can find them on Instagram and Twitter at That BLK Couple. If you have questions or comments about the show, email them at thatblkcouple at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And we're back. And we're back. And it's time for the reflection. So I wanted to reflect on this movie, Mm -hmm. on our overall feelings. I remember when we came out of the movie theater, I think the first thing we said was, I have no criticisms of this movie. Is that what we said? I think that that was the first thing we said. No, I don't think that's what we said. That was what we said. But then in in the first five minutes, we started coming up with criticisms. So I think... You know what? I think you're right. I think out of our mouths, we said, I have no criticisms. And then everything we said was a criticism. Yeah. Because the problem is the movie is stellar. Stunning. It's amazing. Yeah. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's really hard to find too much fault in it. But there are some clear faults in it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and I, I wrote an article about some of my thoughts on on the film on our site, watercoolerconvos.com. The mm-hmm. link to the article will be um, in the notes mm-hmm. for this episode. And what is the article called? We Are Not Wakanda. We Are Not Wakanda. We Are Killmonger. Mm-hmm. And because to me, Killmonger in the film really represented black America. You know, similar similar to what Chris LeBron was saying. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, he's a black guy. He's 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 had a hard upbringing. Like his father was killed, but he made a way for himself. He went to school at MIT. He became top of his class. You know, he was this great covert operative to where this top CIA official knew who he was just upon seeing his face on the screen. Like, oh my God, that's you know, yeah, that guy, right? But at the same time, he was treated so terribly throughout the movie, especially like when he walks into the throne room. I think that was one of the scenes that stuck with me the most. He walked in there and they they were just so dismissive of him and they just laughed at him and they just, they were basically telling him, go shut up. Like, right. who are you? you? You ain't nobody. Right. Like, who do you think that you are? You know, go sit somewhere and shut up and be quiet. Right. And that, that to me is kind of one of my big takeaways from the film. I think going in, everyone was like, this is a great black film and it's going to be so revolutionary. And I think a lot of us were set up to believe that the actual storyline in the movie was going to be super revolutionary. Yeah, no. And I think that was one of my big disappointments in that it wasn't. <laughs> Especially when you think of the, about the end, like, Killmonger basically fought this for right. his whole entire life right. for something that he he deserved right. but was not given. He had to fight to get what was already due to him just right. 
just from birth. Something that was taken from him against his will without his consent. Right. He had no fault in it. He had no control over. Right. Then he was laughed at and dismissed. Right. Then when he fought again and then actually earned the title. Right. He was basically looked at sideways. And, and then so they cheated. They basically said, we can't have this, so let's go cheat the rules. <laughs> right. Black Panther, if he's on ice, and if we take him off the ice, he's the second he's off ice, he's going to die. Right. So let's go cheat and give and him the give Black him the Panther. Hot, the hot shit herb. The hot shit herb. <laughs> to give him the Black Panther powers to make sure he doesn't die. Right. Which, Basically, it's once again reaffirming that Killmonger did win, win. everything fair, fair and square, square and right. by the rules of Wakanda, should still be ruling. Right. But then at, at the end, and then it's just killed summarily at the end and said, oh, well, you get to see the sunrise and then dies. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> for a film where you really thought like this, I mean, it's all these black people, Ryan Coogler is directing, you know, this is going to be, you know, Michael B. Jordan is in it, you know. This was going to be such a revolutionary film. It was revolutionary in a lot of ways, but in the story, it wasn't. And I think we always want, like, we really want a lot of things to always be the revolution. And I think it's it's sad that we can only look to this film as a revolution in certain ways. Representation, it was definitely revolutionary. And but but to that point, I think we also have to take that and say this is a big step. Absolutely. For representation. Absolutely. Like you said, for, for having such a big budget in the hands of, of a black filmmaker. Right. Um, for, a young black filmmaker. Yeah, young. I mean, very young. I mean, very he young. hasn't even very, made very many films. Like, what, three? You it's know, like Fruitvale Station, Creed, and this, and right? This, right. So, I mean, that's a big deal that he's handling this big of a film. It's a tentpole film for Marvel right. and for Disney. Right. I mean, so the stakes of this are really high, and they trusted that this could come together and work and be super profitable, and we are now seeing that. That is reality. Right. And so in those ways, it is the revolution. So here's the thing. So I have two things in particular that I think have stuck with me after seeing the movie twice that I haven't actually seen come up a lot elsewhere. So I think the the first, this is the one I actually haven't seen anywhere. So I found it interesting, the question, who are you, that they asked in the movie where that was the Wakandan way of figuring out if you belonged. And the reason why I actually did not like it was mainly because of the critique that you actually offer in your article that a lot of black scholars have actually offered. I'm thinking specifically of Wilderson. I have to look if I, if I can find one of his articles, but that does this uh, specifically, but thinking about a lot of the criticism of, um, african-american culture and like Hortense spiller's work and this idea of american grammar and how something happens once you hit the middle passage where your old name and your old way of knowing and your old way of being kind of falls away and then some type of new grammar takes its place right and gender sexuality class livelihood the way you see yourself in the world all of it becomes a part of this other process, this Americanizing process, and this system that you really have no control over or no power in, but it becomes who you are. I think it really bothered me, the who are you role in the film, because at the end, the young boy in Oakland says, who are you? And who are you is often used not only to figure out if you belong, but if you should be excluded. Right. And I felt like in a lot of ways, who are you was used in the film to actually divide as opposed to bring in. 
So Killmonger was asked, who are you? And if you remember, T'Challa would not ask him, who are you? Even though he knew who he was. Mm -hmm. He knew who he was and he refused to ask him, who are you? Because he did not want to admit that he was one of them. And I thought about it again at the end when the little boy said, who are you? And T'Challa smiles. And I'm thinking, you're not one of him? Exactly. Because he's one of Killmonger's people, right? Like, technically, that little boy is uh, is like Eric Killmonger. He's not like you. So, you know, it just felt kind of wrong to me how who are you in the movie was used against like an Eric Killmonger and used in a way to deny him a birthright and to deny him access and his rightful place in the African diasporic nation of Wakanda. But then T'Challa comes to Oakland and it's like, you brought me some stuff? You got some technology? Okay, you can come on in. You know, it just it just felt it felt yeah. dirty. It felt dirty to me. And I just really was like, Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that. I mean, I feel like it should be enough that I'm black. Like it should be enough that I identify as a black person. Well, and, I, and like you said, I did touch on this in my piece. I think in, in the Americas, that's often used as a linkage to pride. Right. And you're right. I think that's the thing that's supposed to be happening in Wakanda. But the problem is what it all that it ends up doing is dividing. Because right. it's basically saying, you can say who you are. You can be as proud as you want to be of who you are. But if you're not Wakandan, then it don't matter. It don't matter. It don't have no power here. Right. And I, th- I and, and that division, I, I agree. It, don't feel it doesn't right. sit right with me. It don't feel right. It don't feel right. And I think that really bothered me. But I also want to talk about the kind of like buttoning up at the end of like, now let's go land in Oakland and let's just gentrify it. I bought that building. I bought that building. I bought that building. And I'm not going to actually give it back to the people. I'm going to put some stuff in it and we're going to reach out to people. Like, Wait, so you gentrify the hood? Like, that's not just... Black people, African diasporic people, African continental people can also gentrify hoods. Like, why are we acting like coming to the hood and putting a building that has, you know, technology services when people are hungry or getting surveilled and hyper-police or can't pay for bails and bonds and their schools are closing... Why do you think that the answer is to buy the buildings that have been condemned yeah. and not give it back to them for free housing? Buy it and then let them live in there for free. That seemed like a logical answer to me. Buy the local hospital and let them get services for free. Well, and, and I think that's the problem, right? Is you're, you're talking about division and the fact that he comes into Oakland, into the very building where his father killed his uncle and left his, his cousin to be, you know, fatherless by himself, his life, right? Yes, he comes and he buys these buys these buildings and doesn't talk to anybody there. No, doesn't say, "Hey, I'm buying these buildings. What do you think should?" And be also does what that to Shuddy and Nakia, right? Right. And they're like, "What? You just you just already got all these plans and some you didn't assign me some jobs that I didn't sign up or, right. or want or say that I needed in my life." Like I don't, I, I it, like you said, it doesn't sit right. It's with grimy. Me. Like it's he, grimy. He, what he what would have been better is if he came in and said, "I'm going to talk to the community and we're going to see what this they up. want and need. I'm going to invest in their in in their betterment right. in ways that actually will have a lasting impact. Right. Or that they need. And listen, people are out here excited that Disney actually is gentrifying the hood now. Listen. Disney came out and was like, 
look, we're actually going to put a technology resource center or whatever the fuck in Oakland. Look, pat us on the back. And I'm like, wait, so y'all Negroes are actually excited that Disney is going to gentrify Oakland? Are you serious? And I'm somebody who grew up there. Are you? And I worked at Disney. Are you kidding me right now? I mean, here's the thing. It was smart because it was like, let's mirror exactly what we did in the movie. Everyone will be like, wow, this is like life imitating art. And look, T'Challa says it's okay. So. Right. And that's what bothers me about it is that the movie is trying to indict colonizers. It really cracks me up when Shooty's like, don't scare me like that colonizer. I'm like, girl, shut up. Okay. First of all. Y'all already had Captain America up in here. You over here talking, taking care of, uh, what's his name? Bucky. Bucky. So, so why are you acting like this colonizer is somehow worse or more scary than Captain America and Bucky? Bucky is terrifying. Do you hear me? Bucky is all out terrifying. And touched. So you have this CIA dude in here who is small and petite and played a, a big footed, you know, well, wasn't he? A, wasn't he like Frodo? No, yeah, he, yeah, no, no, he was. He was Bilbo. Bilbo, you got Bilbo Baggins in the lab, and you're like, "Don't scare me, colonizer! Shut up, shut up!" I'm so sorry. Like, I love Shuri, but that part actually really bothered me because I'm like, "Wait, y'all are actually at the end of the movie. Y'all are also being colonizers by going into the hood and gentrifying the hood by buying up property that could be given back to the people who live there and not turning it over to those people who are from that area, you are colonizing. I mean, at the very least, what T'Challa could have done is talk to Nakia. Somebody? At the very least. I mean, this is this is someone who has basically been telling him the whole movie, and from what we can tell from before the movie, like, hey, we need to go outside of Wakanda and then do actual good works. This is probably someone who's a little bit more learned on the subject of what these communities might right. be. Right. And so I think that really bothered me. It also bothered me as someone who worked at Disney for a while. uh, It bothered me that that was the end of the story because I figured that Disney would do something like that. I figured they couldn't go too far because, you know, ooh, scary. Um, They don't like for black people to actually have like freedom in their movies. That's why, you know, Princess Tiana is basically like, I'm going to cook a mean beignet and this gumbo is going to be the bee's knees. I got a restaurant and I work hard. (laughs) You know, that's about as free as black women have gotten in these movies before. So I didn't expect a whole lot. Yeah, the bar was quite low. Quite low. But I also feel like it's super grimy of Disney to make a whole movie about black people where it's supposed to be anti-imperialist, but it's actually pro-imperialist. And they're supposed to be indicting colonizers, except Disney's also a colonizer because Disney did this in Hawaii. Disney's trying to do this in China. Disney has done this in Hong Kong. Listen, they were trying to buy Dia de los Muertos. They tried to trademark Dia de los Muertos before they turned the movie into Coco. Because they wanted to actually own the name of the holiday, Dia de los Muertos. And they they were like, yeah, no, you actually can't trademark someone's cultural event. (laughs) That's like trying trying to trademark Christmas. Or like MLK Day. They would. They would. And that's my issue is like... Disney is a colonizer. Disney's an actual colonizer. So it is actually really hard to be excited about this movie when it's made by a company, a corporation, a mega corporation that is actually trying to colonize certain parts of the of the world and also is not apologetic about it and does it by using labor from people in the states and abroad who can't afford to actually advocate for themselves in ways that would garner a standard of living that 
would be fair. And that's something that's very difficult for me. I think there needs to be some more criticism about the fact that at the end of the movie, T'Challa goes into Oakland. We all know that Oakland is a historically, historically the part of Oakland that they're trying to show, I think, which is, I think is West Oakland, but they're trying to show that is the area that's impoverished. We know that there are schools in Oakland that are often considered underperforming, but they're also under-resourced. And we know that there's a lot of gun-related homicide in Oakland and a lot of policing that happens in Oakland. A lot of that has to do with the fact that there's not a lot of jobs. There's not schools that actually, you know, have education systems that are actually provided. I remember my high school, we didn't actually have books a lot of the time. I didn't have books, you know? And I mean, that that's rough. That's That's rough. And growing up in Oakland, I really didn't appreciate that even as they were trying to give this kind of redemptive story about the city, they were also still trying to say that the answer is gentrification. And the answer to systematic white supremacist, you know, colonized histories is not new colonized histories, especially not like black ones, you know, African ones or whatever. And we, and we were talking about this um, because Disney first approached Ava DuVernay to, to lead this film. Right. And she, I think originally was like, yeah, I'm considering it. And then said no, because she wasn't going to have the type of creative control that she wanted over the film. But said, hey, Ryan Coogler would be great. He's a great director. You know, let him do it. And they, they brought him on and he did it. And he, like we said, he did a great job. But part of me really wonders, right. like, how much control did he really have? Right. Like, how, how heavy handed and, and serious was Disney about having this type of ending for the film? Right. Like, at which points did, did Disney say, nope, you got to pull that back? Right. Nope, that's too revolutionary. Nope, that message is not, right. is, is, is too, too indicting of, of white people. So we can't, like, right. how, how many times? I would imagine a lot. I pro- probably a lot. Yeah. I, I would imagine a, a hell of a lot. As somebody who worked there and watched what they do, like when they were making, Princess and the Frog, and how much work that was, and how many times they had focus groups. Yeah, didn't they work on that for years? They worked on that just for to get years. the story right. The way they worked on Coco, I mean, the way that they worked on Moana, the the type. Disney doesn't do anything without like a ten year lead time, so that means that they had that had they had that brewing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And what we know about how they make movies, even how they made Lion King, and how much drama they had behind making Lion King, the original Lion yep. King, the cartoon. You know, that's something where I would suspect that they had a really heavy hand in deciding how that storyline played out. And it played into their overall ploy, which was we have this project where we want to gentrify part of Oakland. So we want to wrap that in because they're all about synergy. And that to me is grimy as fuck. Like that shit is, it is a bad taste in my mouth. I think it's gross. And that's one of the hardest things for me about movies like this that are great. Like even Queen of Cotway is a Disney movie. And I love that movie and I, I'm really grateful for it. But I hate that the company behind it is a company that still believes that they should be going out into parts of the world that are places that are not like Americana, that are not supposed to be like Americana. And they still try to pump out this message of Cinderella and Snow White and princesses and whatever the fuck else that makes them money in this capitalistic enterprise of commodifying childhood. Mm-hmm. And they are really about commodifying childhood and they're really great at it. And that to me is grimy as hell. Thank you for listening. Before you go, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at that BLK couple on Facebook at that black couple and look us up on the internet at 
www.thatblackcouple.com Wakanda forever. <laughs> <laughs>